Through the fathomless depths of space swims the star turtle, the great Etuan. And on its back are four nerds trying to figure out just what it is that makes Sir Terry Pratchett's work both timely and timeless. So grab your thalm-resistant overcoat, make sure you understand the bounds of your personal geese, and join us on our journey through sorcery and the complete discography. Okay, so we're talking about sorcery, which has a little more contention this time, so that'll be exciting. I am Aaron, the Arch-Chancellor's Hat's fourth choice. I am Anna, an aspiring barbarian hero. I'm Justin, and I'm the reason that wizards can't have sex. That's not how you put it in the document. <laughs> I am Minna, I'm Elizabeth Jam Jar. Just as a content note before we get started, uh, this podcast will probably contain uh, at least a little bit of discussion of what honestly is best described as child abuse. Uh, so if that's a problem with you, for you, uh, talk to us some other time, I guess, about the book. Because I think most of it won't have that discussion, but it is something that is a discussion point. So we can, put, we can timestamp it and stuff. So tonight we're talking about Sorcery, the fifth book in the Discworld series. It was first published in 1988. This book is exactly as old as I am. Publication date is May 26, so is that older or younger than you? That is slightly older. So I don't know if you had it in your copy, Justin, but in mine, it has, in the dedication, it has the um, origin of the luggage. Um, I don't think so. Um, hold on. All right. I will, I will read it for, uh, for posterity then. Many years ago, I saw in Bath a very large American lady towing a huge tartan suitcase very fast on little rattly wheels which caught in the pavement cracks and generally gave it a life of its own. At that moment, the luggage was born. Many thanks to that lady and everyone else in places like Power Cable, Nebraska, who don't get nearly enough encouragement. This book does not contain a map. Please feel free to draw your own. It's a good dedication. Mm-hmm. Love the luggage. I think that's that's something I miss in that that's something I missed in ebook is because it, it is in my ebook. I just it just starts me on page one. Yeah. Why do books do that? I'm the kind of person who reads like all of the all of the pieces. Oh, there is a dedication. It yeah, started I've, me on page one. Yeah. It skipped the dedication. I'm very, hey, I'm very books, don't do that. Kindle why? I read every part of the book. I've been known to read acknowledgments most most times. Eat every part of the buffalo. Read every part of the book. Yes. <laughs> Sometimes I'll even read the author bio when I get done. <laughs> On the back of the book. So in previous episodes, we've talked a little bit about concerns over the... Um, gender roles, specifically about wizards, and why they are so afraid of women, apparently, and specifically why they're not allowed to have intimate relations. Uh, so, Justin, I think you did the summary this time? Yes. Um, and now we begin Book 5 of Discworld Sorcery, in which we learn why wizards should not bone down. 
just for a little bit of our main character, this is a Rincewind novel, um, which means that we get our favorite hapless, uh, no longer burdened by one of the great spells, but still ineffectual wizards, Rincewind. Uh, and his, now his, specifically, um, sapient pearwood companion, the luggage. A but, good boy. But first we start with our favorite anthropomorphization from the last book, Death. Uh, Death starts off the book doing his job. He is there to pick up a wizard, uh, Ipslor the Red. And I'm going to just go off on a minor, minor tangent here. Is his name a thing on Ipsum Lorem? Oh, I don't know. Like the Latin... That, that, that's just... that, that I, I've, I looked at that name so much today that I just assume it is. But anyways, uh, Ipsilon of the Red is not like normal wizards. He got pissed off at the Orderers and the Unseen University. He left, and he decided to start a family. As we start this, he has just celebrated the birth of his eighth son. Normally, the a wizard is the eighth son of an eighth son. But this new boy is the eighth son of an eighth son of an eighth son. He is a sorcerer, which is a source of magic, incredible power. Instead of a wizard who draws on the magic around him, sorcerers are a source of magic and generate that on their own. They're a wizard squared. Yes. And I'll note that sorcerer is spelled S-O-U-R-C-E-R-O-R. Yes. Like source. Um, this entire section, I, I have at least one note that's just in all caps, Anakin? <laughs> See? Because I'm with, in Star Wars hell right now. I mean, this is also why evil wizards should not bang down if we're going to talk about Star Wars momentarily. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just, I, I put Anakin in the notes and then the next thing I highlighted... Wait, I put Anakin in the notes twice, and then I highlighted, they called themselves wizards, and they had less magic in their whole fat bodies than I have on my little finger. Banish me for showing that I was human, and what would humans be without love? Rare. To quote death. <laughs> That's such a good line. Anyway, Justin, please continue. Oh, hey, this is gonna, because I'm the one doing the, the, the summary this time, we are going to go on tangents. <laughs> But enjoyable ones, I promise, dear listener. Ipslor decides to cheat death with a prophecy. I like how this does sort of build on what we've got in our last book about death, is that death is really what you make of it, like, in a literal sense. And Ipslor decides, because I'm going to make a prophecy about getting revenge on wizards, that means I don't have to go with death. Instead, I'm going to go into the staff of my that I'm going to be giving to my son which is a staff made of octire. And because of this prophecy, death cannot collect Ipslor's soul, at least until the prophecy is fulfilled. Or the loophole. Yes, the loophole. Um, and now we fast forward to our present, where we catch up with Rincewind. He is now the assistant to the librarian of Unseen University, uh, who, as we recall was transformed into an orangutan, and quite prefers that state of being. Rincewind, the librarian, and our favorite genocidal sapient pair with the luggage, 
are grabbing mm-hmm. a drink at the mended drum. And they're there because um, Rincewind has the survival instincts of cockroaches and rats and stuff and flees the university along with all of the critters who normally free, flee things when something's about to happen bad. Yeah, the, Rincewind put all of his points in character creation in danger sense, which is really just that feat you get that lets the GM slip you notes or tell you, you've got a bad feeling about this. <laughs> he spared like two points for languages. <laughs> That's it, though. Also, also a fun note about the critters fleeing the university. Um, and this is something that we we might see again. Um, that living in the university changes you. Um, and these creatures, the bedbugs, aren't aren't just fleeing. They're fleeing and taking the bed with them. Not to mention we get those... Is it the ants? The ants with the complex civilization? Didn't they come back? They, they do. Yeah, they, they definitely do. The reason that... Everyone, everyone with a good survival sense is fleeing Unseen University, as that Ipslor's son, Coin, has arrived. He murders the man meant to be the next Arch-Chancellor of the University, and then challenges another wizard to a duel of magic, promptly murdering him, and becoming generally accepted as the next Arch-Chancellor. While Rincewind is in the mended drum drinking away, he encounters a woman who gives him a very excellent come-with-me-if-you-want-to-live pitch. Um, we, we find that she is a thief who has stolen the Arch-Chancellor's hat, which is um, a sort of the gestalt memory of wizard kind. It, it accumulates knowledge from the Arch-Chancellor's and has gone on for 2,000 years being that thing. Our thief, as we find out, is ultra-deadly Konina, who, as we learn, is the daughter of the legendary barbarian Kohen, who we last encountered in The Light Fantastic. She stole the hat, interestingly enough, at the request of the hat. Uh... The hat, as we learn, can communicate telepathically, and it believes that Coin, the sorcerer, represents a threat to wizardry. And the hat very much likes wizardry over alternative methods. Um, the hat wishes to have a proper bearer, which is apparently in the city of Al-Kali. Rincewind, Konina, and the luggage travel across the disk's oceans to Al-Kali, where... Um, they have an encounter with some pirates on the way, lose the hat, but it's okay. It's going to end up in the in the court anyways, because wi- wibbly-wobbly converging paths. Um, they are taken to the court of the Seraph of the city, the poetry-loving, rich, uh, guillotine-fodder creosote. Uh, the... Three members of our party are separated, with Rincewind being tossed in a snake pit, Konina being placed in the Seraph's harem, where he has his concubines tell him stories, and that's it, we swear. And the luggage gets lost in the city, becoming drunk and lovesick, and um, then going on a murderous rampage and killing several creatures 
of mythic proportions in the desert. To be fair, they attacked him first. Yes, my poor boy has never ha- has done they no wrong. They all wanted to eat him. Yes. The, the luggage has had a hard day. The this luggage is not a great terrible, book for the luggage. No good. Very bad day. I don't, that's um, not even the full We thing. need to write that children's book. Terrible, horrible, I, no good, very bad day. I, I would I would write this book and attempt to illustrate it, and it would be a terrible illustration. Would it be well, terrible, well, ho- horrible, no good, and very bad? It would be, in fact. Um, we we don't we don't ever uh, we don't ever let me draw and post it to, so that other people can see. Meanwhile, back in Ankhor Pork, Coin has been a very busy boy. Um, as a source of magic, his sorcery empowers the wizards of the Unseen University to accomplish marvelous feast feats and to twist reality. His ambitions, however, quickly exceed simply empowering wizards. He wishes to rule the world. He orders that Unseen University and the Orders of Wizards to be disbanded, and he orders the university's library burned. Thankfully, the librarian is able to sequester most of the collection. Once they have decided that they are done with the Unseen University, uh, the wizards set off on a mission of conquest, starting with Al-Khalid. The arrival of those wizards coincides with Rincewind meeting another fellow in the snake pit he has tossed into. He's a nice young boy. His name is Nigel, the Destroyer. Nigel is a wannabe barbarian who's really well-meaning and very polite, and by gosh, he has a handbook on how to be a hero. He's a walking stick insect. He is. With wooly underwear. Oh, buddy. He promised his mother. Rincewind, empowered by the magic in the air, is actually able to cast spells to get himself out of situations, and they are able to escape the snake pit. Uh, they join up with Konina and Creosote, uh, the former of which becomes instantly smitten with Nigel. The four of them escape Alkali on a magic carpet as Creosote's vizier, Abrim, puts on the Archchancellor's hat and becomes empowered by it. Uh, Abrim... Abrim sort of... The hat puts Abrim on. Fair enough, yes. The the, the hat sort of is the one. Is his name a pun? Abrim? Oh! Oh, no. Oh, I hate this. I was trying to think how how the audiobook was pronouncing it. I can't remember, but I did think of that when I was trying to think of a pronunciation. Oh, no. I just realized that. Oh, no. A a pun, or a play on words, Mm -hmm. as it were. Abrim fights several of the sorcerer's wizards, converts several of them to his cause, or perhaps cause, and then begins constructing his own tower. Things are going very wizardly medieval. All the wizards are deciding, hey, towers, that sounds like a good idea right now. With the orders gone, they're all getting very... What would be the best way to put this? They're, they're getting very infighty. And very independent. They're kind of going feral. Yeah, they're going feral. They're just like, they want to kill other wizards and make towers. It's like this weird murderous nesting syndrome. 
Yeah, at one point, even Rincewind sleepwalking is trying to build his own tower. God, the poor boy. <laughs> Rincewind, as they flee, uh, ha- has some wor- ha- has some words with Creosote, who uh, blames a lot of the world's problems on wizards. Uh, he abandons the group and heads back to Unseen University on the magic carpet. Uh, they're in a surprisingly two-sided conversation with the librarian, is convinced to confront Coin. Uh, Rincewind decides to go back to Alkali and does confront Coin, but not with magic. Instead, he does it with a sock and a half-brick. Uh, in the commotion, while this is happening, a brim is killed by the luggage in his tower. Uh, the luggage has been having a very bad book, and blames uh, in, Merchant. In the luggage's defense, it's not actually the luggage. It's um, Abrim's concentration is distracted by the luggage arriving, and the Ankhmor Pork wizards uh, kill him. Fair, yes. Um, but I'm sure that the luggage is happy to take credit for this. Yeah. <laughs> I don't mean to kill Steel. <laughs> In the in the process of this, the Arch Chancellor's hat is destroyed, lost. As Rincewind is approaching Coin, uh, Coin is trying to convince the wizards that the world is not enough, and that the gods themselves must be conquered. Coin is able to capture the gods in a pearl, uh, which causes the apocalypse to start, uh, which involves the ice giants coating the uh, the disc in permanent frost back with Rincewind, he arrives to confront Coin, and eventually convinces him that he can make his own choices and to throw away the staff. The staff, however, is still possessed by some remnant of Ipslor. And before death arrives to finally collect Ipslor, as the loophole has now been fulfilled... Coin and Rincewind are sent to the dungeon dimension. They're in the dungeon dimension. Uh, Rincewind decides to save Coin by distracting the creatures with his other sock, which is full of sand, and allows the boy to escape to the university. Just as the gateway between dimensions closes, the luggage is able to squeeze into the dungeon dimensions in search of Rincewind. Coin releases the gods, stopping the ice giants and preventing the apocalypse. Uh, we have a small denouement at the end where Coin restore, restores the university and the city of Ankh-Morpork to what it was before he came. Konina and Nigel visit the university to try to find Rincewind. Um, but Coin convinces them to forget Rincewind with his party power. Uh, but Coin convinces them to forget Rincewind with his powers and to live happily ever after. Coin realizes that sorcerers are not meant to be in this world. They just sort of slide in and wear the world for a while. And he decides to create his own dimension to live in, disappearing from the disc forever. And we end on the librarian, who is respectfully placing Rincewind's battered hat on a pedestal. So there are a lot of principal characters in this book, kind of. Or there's a lot of folks who share the the stage. Uh, there's Rincewind, Kunina, Nigel, the hat, the luggage, coin, 
the staff. Uh, the There's wizards. actually a lot of named wizards too. Yeah. Yeah. The librarian. All of whom die. So many of them. So many wizards die because they are not. Okay, this is a problem I had with the book. How do you pronounce this word? Puissant. 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 Yeah, I, I, yes. I had to Google it. <laughs> My yes, problem is that I only I can only think about how to pronounce it in French, so I'm like, that's probably not how it's pronounced in English, though. Well, it'd be if you're thinking about like poisson, then it would be like fish, right? No, it would be puissant. It would be puissant. Puissant. I mean, it's probably that because it, you know, it's, it's all of those English borrow words from French. Yeah. yeah, just don't pronounce the T at the end. Puissant. And then it's French. Okay. Um, but yes, many wizards die because they are not puissant enough. So it's interesting in, in, the, in talking about things that were confusing. Definitely the first time I read this, I somehow didn't quite cotton on to the fact that Ipslore was like actually in the staff. I don't know how, but somehow I didn't. Uh, and I guess the first time I read it, I thought of the staff as a little bit more like Esks from Equal Rights, where the staff sort of has a mind of its own, but isn't like legitimately just like a, another wizard. Um, but this is something I was like, oh, this makes more sense now this time around. I mean, the, the entire book is a proxy war between the uh, the Archchancellor's hat and the uh, and Ipsler's staff. Um, yeah, that was actually something that I sort of like, like that that I had to realize like two thirds of the way into the book. Actually, later. I think once the hat took over Abram, I was like, except that I was also seeing them as not so much as. I just now realized it's partly Ipsor versus wizardry because Ipsor is bitter about wizardry. I just was like, also, this is the embodiment of sorcery versus the embodiment of wizardry. Or sort of a, a wizard using sorcery in the body of coin. <laughs> the hat is definitely the embodiment of wizardry. What yeah. the staff slash coin embodies is anyone's guess. Yeah. So, what is what are what are people's sort of like broad impressions of this one? I thought that I, I I was thinking that I would lead with this because I feel like I'm a little bit neutral. Um, I felt like it was an interesting step forward, lore wise, and I do tend to like world building books, even if they don't have a strong plot or characters. Um, and depending on the world building. So I felt like this was sort of a step forward in terms of the world building, in terms of the lore. We learn a lot more about wizardry, about magic on the disc, about the gods and their role, all sorts of stuff. But it was a step backward in terms of, like, being a coherent novel. Um, the world building is cool, but it's not really strung together very well. Uh, the pacing was really rough in my eyes. And like you said, it, it drags in a lot of places. So I feel like I end up being kind of neutral that there's a lot of aspects that I really like about it, but it's better as a world building book and as a collection of like 
interesting scenes and bits strung together than as a coherent novel. I think I'm actually about at the same level you are, just coming from the opposite direction of, like, for a long time I was not enjoying myself because there were just a lot of scenes with a lot of wizards that I wasn't having fun with. And then the Mage War shit started happening. I'm like, yes, the first time Mage Wars got mentioned, I was like, this sounds dope, too bad, we're never going to see it. And then it started happening. (laughs) So that was about where I got finally hooked in. Also, once Rincewind, any book with Rincewind as a protagonist, once he stops being like, I don't want to do this, I don't want to do this, and starts actually reluctantly doing things, it starts to pick up for me. I do like his reluctance, but it's, if nothing else is happening but his reluctance, it can get a little bit wearing. I feel like it's almost like those, um, when you have a, like, tabletop RPG game and you have that one player who's refusing to engage with the tropes, like you're playing a horror game and they're just like, well, I'm going to be completely cautious at all times because I know that this is a horror game or, or what have you. And it's like, just, just embrace the narrative that you're in and, and roll with it, buddy. I will say, There were parts of this where I thought, this feels like being in a tabletop RPG game, complete with, like, nonsensical running jokes that aren't adding anything. They're just silly, ongoing jokes. (laughs) Like the thing about the geese that kept coming up. I feel like that's a real shaggy dog here. (laughs) The geese. And Nigel does also have a tome of wandering monsters. Yes. Yeah. I mean, there were always going to be some reference. It's just some some bits of it are like, wow, this is really just what playing a tabletop game feels like, though. Uh, Anna, you found something interesting while you were researching for our notes today about, like, Terry's comments on the book. Yeah. Um, I mean, this is from TV Tropes, and I wasn't able to find what the source was on this. So, like... Take of it what you will, but it's something that made sense to me. Um, that apparently Terry has uh, commented that this was actually his least favorite book of the series. Um, that he wrote it out of pressure from fans who wanted more Rincewind specifically. Um, and one of the reasons that it makes sense to me is that it does end with Rincewind sacrificing himself and. I mean, potentially dying. Um, the that that it seems like it could have been an effort to kind of write Rincewind out and give him like one last book. We know that he we know that Terry does come back to Rincewind in future novels, but it seems sort of like it's sort of like maybe a Reichenbach Falls moment. I was gonna say, is this the final problem for Discworld? Yeah, that's that's sort of. It, it made a lot more sense to me when I thought about it in that context. That like Terry was under pressure from fans to like we want more Rincewind, and so he was like, 
okay, here's more rinse wind. I've got a bunch of ideas about the world that I'm going to shove into something that resembles a book. And then like, fuck it, I'm going to kill him. Potentially. I would be a much bigger fan of this book if it was not a Rincewind book, but was in fact about Coin. Like, um, Coin is not a very important character in this book, like, narratively. For about a third of the book, he just completely does not appear. Between, like, halfway through up until, like, the start of the third act... Like or like the, the the climax of this book, he just does not appear on page. Well, and that's that's something that's something also interesting in that like it's almost surprising that Coin isn't more more of a POV character because in the last couple of books, Terry has really sort of enjoyed exploring the disc through essentially coming of age stories that we have uh, Esk and we have Mort. Um, and this is something I want to talk about later, about how Coin's story differs from those two. Um, but I think for now, uh, why don't we hear Aaron's opinion? Because I think Aaron's is different. Uh, well, so I'll preface this by saying that uh, I actually did some archaeology on myself. And uh, I bought this book for the second time uh, off of Amazon in 2004. And then just recently for the third time with a really nice copy. Um so I've read it a bunch of times and I think that maybe I'm, you know, past the point where it's following the narrative for me and more just hitting those comfortable spaces because yeah, I mean, it's definitely a lore book. It's not the, it's not the more coherent plots that he does later on that really like build on a story, but it still is that same like, so he's established wizards in the previous three books. And then he's like, well, what if I break that and then put it back together and see what happens? I think that the, my, my like of it isn't necessarily narrative enjoyment so much as the, the parts of the world that I know. And honestly, that's fair. Like I've got books that, that definitely in some ways aren't very good books that I love nonetheless. Mm hmm. And sometimes, sometimes you kind of forgive a book that's part of a series because it introduces interesting concepts, even if it's not a particularly strong installment on its own. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that like I'm too deep into it to see, except through your eyes, the the weaker portions of it. Well, and this is one of the things that we wanted to do with this show, so that's exactly. really cool. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like the it sort of to flow into the next subject prettily um i reading at this time i really sort of see the the main thrust of the book aside from really establishing wizards and what magic is uh and how it works and how it doesn't is like identity really you know the the um there's a lot of struggles with identity with the various main major characters you know, with Rintwind and Nigel being the ones who are like, well, this is the thing that I have to be, even if I'm not good at it, versus, um, you know, Kanina and, and the luggage pulling away from their natural talents. Yeah, for sure. Um, that was, I thought, one of the strongest parts of the book was 
the kind of themes of identity um, and kind of destiny as well. And Rinsman and Nigel both have chosen these careers that they really strongly identify with, but ultimately really suck at. Um, and then Konina and Coyne are kind of the destiny aspect of that, that they've been pushed into these paths by others or by, um, as Cohen would say, or, or Konina would say, um, Harry Dettery, the bastardization of hereditary there. Um, the question that we've, we've asked sort of off and on leading up to this is like, what would Coin have been if Ipslor wasn't forcing him into his idea of what Coin should be? Yeah, that that I feel like the two of them are a little bit two sides of the same coin. That they've been pushed into these roles of things that they ultimately are very good at, um, but that that don't really suit them and aren't what they chose. Um, and then Creosote is also there as well. That he is not a particularly effective ruler, um, and he's also not a very good poet. But like. Rincewin and Nigel are just like at their core, they know that they are respectively a wizard and a barbarian hero. Um, Creosote knows that he is a poet. Um, and it doesn't matter that he is a truly awful poet. He is a poet. Yeah, I think there I think there's some I think it's a like the idea of like how you identify yourself is really just it's it's a really good through line on there because i think every because yeah everybody in this book is like working with some matter of identity um and rincewood has a really good line about that in the in the sort of the back half of the book um he's he's actually saying to the stakoi and he says it's a it's a vital remember it's he says it's vital to remember who you really are. It's very important. It isn't a good idea to rely on other people or things to do it for you, you see. They, they always get it wrong. Which definitely is like... I, I think that's like one of those things of like... That's something that like Coyd probably needed to hear a lot earlier in his life. Yeah. Well, that, that kind of gets into something that I want to talk about a bit later as well. And in terms of other themes, this is also a different book from the others we've seen so far in that this is the first one that has a bittersweet ending. So it's the sort of, I think along with that identity and destiny sort of stuff of you you can't always get what you want. um, But if you try, sometimes you get what you need. (laughs) that the the world is saved. Um, Coin gets to like ascend and become a god, basically, um, in his own private plane. Uh, haha, private plane. But Vrincewind, who's the one who actually saved the world with nothing but a sock full of sand, um, ends up ends up sacrificing himself and ends up trapped in the dungeon dimensions with a extremely unclear future ahead of him. Are wizards Jedi? Is this like a midichlorian thing? Is that why? Has the, how this works is it biology? 
I just, I love that multiple of us went for the Star Wars reference on this one. Do it. Was, Do it. Is it us as people, or is it just the climate that we're in right now? I, I, I can't fucking list us. Yeah. True. Are there other themes that, that uh, either of our newer readers picked out? I don't want to say themes, but we certainly got some tropes going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, with uh, Al-Khali here, and I believe I have um, written down here, uh, what in the Sam Hill is this Orientalist bullshit? Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, You're not wrong. Um, so yeah, like, we're, we're, the city of Alkali in this is about, it's a little bit, it's four years too early for Arabian Nights, um, but it's there, it's, um, we, we have our, uh, we have our rich sultan with a harem, if, even if we're toying with that a little bit, where he just wants stories from his... Scantily That's clad not ladies. Queen with it that much. That's a thousand and one nights reference. It, okay, yeah, it is. This um, is literally yeah. all just thousand and one nights references, as far as I can tell. The evil mm-hmm. vizier. Although my my wife and daughter are actually currently reading uh, thousand and one nights just for fun, and the vizier isn't evil, as far as I can tell. Huh. The the vizier tries to get Sal- Salome. Um, tries to get the Shahrazad. Yeah, tries to get her. He's her dad, and he tries to get her not to get married to the the Sultan. But that is the evil vizier is like a. As far as I can tell, it's it's a common and tired Orientalist trope. But I only know this from encounters through like satire or like people talking about it because Mm -hmm. I've apparently missed. It's like except for Jafar, I've apparently missed the things this is happening in. It's like very, it's very Aladdin. Mm-hmm. Like this whole thing is very Aladdin. And not necessarily in, in comfortable ways. A- including including later on in the story, we have a uh, humorous, uh, temporally, I- I'd say temporally displaced or temporally asynchronous genie. I, I like the genie. I don't like that it is a genie, but... This I, like, I don't like, hate the genie character. It got a couple chuckles. It. That character got a couple chuckles for me. Um, but I, it's just I like love this kind of extremely stupid mashing of the supernatural and mundane. Legitimately, I do just hear that that you know weird yuppie genie talking in Robin Williams' voice yeah. when I read this book. So. <laughs> It's kind of a, it's actually, it's actually, like, rationally, it doesn't really make sense, but, like, also, also it brings me joy. Yeah, that's fair. The the creative misuse of, of um, reality also was a really funny part for me. Oh, yeah, like, oh, I'm holding the lamp, but we're inside the lamp, but I'm holding the lamp, but we're inside the lamp. <laughs> and everybody else stop thinking about it. I love that you can pretty then, much do anything in Discworld as long as you don't know that you can't do it. This is like an ongoing theme with the magic, and I'm into it. Because mm-hmm. Esk had that too. Mm-hmm. It's Wily e. Coyote logic. And then was the sound of the universe catching on. 
it's it's like Wile E. Coyote, or it's like Looney Tunes logic, where Wile E. Coyote can keep running on no air, just so long yeah. as he does not look down. Uh-huh. Of course. I'm pretty sure Rincewood could do the same thing. I don't know if Rincewind could do the same thing. Two Flower could do the same thing. Nigel, no, Nigel would question it too soon. A lot of people could do the same thing, but I don't know that Rincewind could. <laughs> Rincewind is inherently far too. Well, no, it's that Rincewind is inherently far too aware of depths, not heights. Right. It's the depths that scare He's him. He's afraid of the ground. Yeah, which is fair. He's terrified of grounds. I just love that he hates he hates flying, but he flies in like every book he's in. I mean, if you look at like his first encounter, I mean, the way that he no, it's not even his first encounter. The way the first book ends, I would be very scared of flying too. Rincewind has had a hard life. I'd ask what he does to deserve it, but well, I think the answer is survive. <laughs> I am. I'm very fond at this point of just of just Rincewind's like he's he's experienced so much and he hates all of it and I relatable. It's it's in fact it's laid out when the hat explains to Rincewind why he was picked to to carry him away. Uh, basically, like, uh, but I don't. I want to go away from danger, and the hat's like, yeah, I know. That's why I picked you. I also like how they made magic weird, like especially the higher energy magics. Yeah, and and along with that, there's the trope of like synesthesia to describe magic, which Terry uses very well. Like the things like the magic tasted yellow. Mm-hmm. I really think that that's very effective as a way to describe magic. The sound sa- smelled like the sound of a piano recently fallen down a mine shaft or something mm-hmm. like that. It smelled yeah. yellow. It tasted like something, and it it was the sound of a piano falling into a well or something like that. It, it looked like the sound of a piano falling into a well. And then it. when you got close to the tower, things really got weird. Uh, and he also sort of very creatively off-screens a lot of the really weird stuff. Yeah. And there's there's some more interesting tropes, too, especially with the hat and a brim that the hat is it's it's the interesting kind of turncoat turncoat character here because you 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 see it and it's when when the hat is introduced it's clearly being manipulative but then once it is on a brim's head that's when you kind of see it for what it's what it really is and and meanwhile i kind of had the question of how much of that, since we know that the the hat is sort of shaped by the heads that wear it, um, that it absorbs their experiences um, to to some extent, yeah, I wonder. I wonder how much was the hat um, having this ulterior motive all along, and how much of it was when it got put on Abram's head, it absorbing some of his evil machinations which is is one of the interesting open questions of the book i think i'm not gonna lie if we're talking tropes uh the thing i put in the trope section creosote i don't i don't like 
everything he's based in and like him actually in Alkali. But once they leave, he's I mean, even in in the city, he's A, he's he's very funny once he starts getting sarcastic about Rincewind. I kind of enjoyed that. But also he's like just a, a an opportunity to make little pokes at like those myths of like you know, the person who had really rich parents who claims that they built their business from the bottom up, like, started from nothing and did it all themselves. When, like, very clearly, this man grew up in the lap of luxury. His father... What was the quote about, like, his grandfather started only with a, a magic lamp, a magic carpet, and a cave full of jewels or something like that. And I'm like, that's not nothing. Yeah. <laughs> a small one of a million dollars. Oh yeah, and there's Korea so it's all like, oh, I'm not rich. I don't, I don't, I don't indulge myself with the wonders of the world. I just have, you know, my 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 actual like paradise and my harem. Creosote is Marie Antoinette with her little rural pastimes. You're not wrong. the 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 most relatable part of uh, of that is. Uh, Creosote's response to the apocalypse is to want to get drunk, and honestly, big mood. Big mood. Creosote's response to everything is to want to get drunk. Big mood. Big he's, mood. He's he's mad about being sober the entire time that they're running away from Alkali. I, I'm gonna pronounce it about four different ways, by the way. <laughs> Fair. I just heard myself say Alkali, and my brain flashed back to a study in Scarlet. This is not where we're going here. Hey, Mino, what do you, what do you want to do a Sherlock Holmes podcast? You realize I'm in the midst of trying to read the Sherlock Holmes series when I'm not trying I, to I read know, it. But, uh, do you, do you, do you want to you drop your, your thesis? Oh, yeah. Here, the, the um, you know, full page that I wrote mm-hmm. uh, as notes for myself. Let's go. So here's note to future Aaron. This is where the content warning should go. Thank you, future Aaron, for hey. protecting our readers or listeners or whatever medium this is in. Um, it's a podcast, I think. Yeah, probably. Right? This was supposed to be. I think so. Anyway, so this, we've talked a lot in terms of there being kind of the button moment of that moment where the humor drops away and Terry is saying something real. And I know that you folks had kind of specific moments in mind for this book. I wanted to talk about something that's a little bit more general. Um, It's more of an overall observation of the book. But so the first thing I want to say is that this is the third book in a row that features some portion of a coming-of-age story. We had Ask in Equal Rights. We had Mort in, well, Mort. Um, But here we have Coin. And not only is Coin not actually a POV character here, uh, his story is really different from the others. Um, Ask and Mort have, they both have kind of absent parents who leave them to be raised by a outside mentor figure, but they do have that strong mentor figure that uh, Esk has granny, Mort has death, and and also 
um, Albert, arguably, um, perhaps. Uh, but both of them have they're both protagonists they're both pov characters and they both have the kind of narrative freedom to explore their own talents and find their path in life uh with coin we have an abused child honestly um he's he's throughout the course of this narrative he's completely under the thumb of the soul of his father that's been incarnated, transferred, what have you, into that that awful Octoron staff. Um, and honestly, this situation for Coin really makes the whole magical war more tragic. So we already talked about how it's really a proxy war between between the staff and the hat. But it's it's really just Ipslor using his son as a object to be controlled he's using his son to just get back at the entire wizarding community for for what really like a personal grudge um it's just for his own stubborn headedness it's like that trope of the the failed football dad except like times a billion yeah, exactly. And so he's taking advantage of his son's naivete and his age and um, et cetera to just control him. And like we even see in the book that he's, you know, Ipslor punishes this poor kid with like magical electroshock whenever Coin doesn't want to murder people. Um, and plus, you know, the, the intro where we see Ipslor meeting death really makes it clear that Ipslor did not treat any of his other progeny any better. Um, it, it's it's sort of like something from the Raised by Narcissist subreddit. So to, to kind of actually go someplace with this, this all makes me wonder what would have happened in this book if Coin hadn't had Ipslor controlling him from beyond the grave. Like, what is the core of this taboo against wizards having kids? Obviously, it's it's about, you know, if if wizards have kids, then, you know, they could make a sorcerer. Their children have reality-warping powers um, and possibly midichlorians. But, you know, it, this opens up the question, is sorcery inherently a problem? Like, you know, the, the idea that, you know, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. Um, is it just not worth, worth the potential risk of a sorcerer being awful and doing massive damage to the world? Or are wizards just so, are wizards just socialized to be narcissistic, murderous assholes who all they want to do is manipulate and abuse their offspring to take over the world? So I, I think that's a interesting question brought up by this book. Um, what actually is the problem with sorcerers? Is is the problem with Coin that he's a sorcerer, or is the problem with Coin like fucking Ipslor? Also, as a side note, uh, what would Rincewind's potential offspring be like? They might be able to cast spells. Jesus Christ, don't do that to them. <laughs> I, I legitimately, first of all. 
the idea that Rincewood procreating is possibly something I don't want to comprehend. I will say that the the color of magic does say that uh, Rincewind has had orgasms occasionally in the presence of other people. No, and it's pretty clear that he has been in had the company of women, probably. Uh, I hate that I phrased it that way. Also, I just want to state here, Konina came in and Rincewind was instantly struck and I was like, oh no, please don't do this to us. Please don't. And thank God he did not. Thank God. But also the <laughs> luggage fell in love with her. I don't think yes. I could have coped with Konina falling in love with Rincewind. <laughs> She's too cool. She deserves better. I love Rincewind, but she deserves better. Probably deserves better than Nigel also for being real here, but whatever. Yeah, oh yeah, yeah. We're going to get to that in the shipping corner. I think I'm in the anti-shipping corner this I, oh yeah, no, I'm, I'm anti here. Like, I think by the end they're cute, but like, oh... Gosh, we, we we we've got a whole podcast to record before we get there. That that's that's our bud cake at the end of this. Um. So yeah, what what are everybody else's thoughts on my you know, monologue there? I I think it's a yeah, it, it's something I maybe like. It's something that like really hit me towards the end. I don't think it was like as clear to me, but yeah, there's definitely a lot of the. Oh hey, red flags of overambitious parents, especially those who have like real hangups of their own that they have not yet settled. Which, by the way, God, I do not want to think about like probably what Ipsilor was like to Coin's mom. Yeah, this is. This is going to sound very tropey, but um, like I remember reading this book and seeing it as child abuse when I was younger. I definitely haven't read this book since I had kids myself. And now it's just like that is definitely a big problem for me for this book. Yeah, it's definitely something that I really didn't pay attention to last time I read it. And this time you hit that scene where it's one of the other named wizards who was doomed to death, mm-hmm. um, whose name I don't remember, is like in the hall and listens to like coin crying as the staff shocks him. And reading through it, I was just like, oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, that part's not good. It's not necessarily content that shouldn't be in the book, but it's... If it's a problem for you, avoid this book. Yes. Are we good on that? So for me, one of the buttons was uh, as the structures, these safe, calm, not very dramatic structures of, of... the magical world are breaking down. Rincewind is just utterly distraught uh, because his entire world is just shattered. And it really felt pertinent to today uh, because, you know, the, the it was all just politicking and occasional, you know, mundane assassinations, but that's a, a, 
considered a natural cause of death for wizards. <laughs> um, as we've seen, you know, in previous fights for the arch chancellorship. Um, but also sort of looking at it from, from the publication time of the, of the late eighties, it was still in this really high tension between the, the two major nuclear powers and, um, looking at the, looking at these high energy magic spells being cast to destroy everything. It really felt to me like Terry sort of poking at the idea of, you know, what happens if this very sort of gentlemanly agreement not to shoot nuclear bombs at each other breaks down. That was what, that was the fear that sort of came through to me sort of reading metatextually. Definitely. And that's one of the interesting things of, you know, thinking about the, the context of when each of these books was written. Yeah, I think I, I, I think that it's like it's the the entire wizard society of just like oh hey you can you can be this it's all about like just the accumulation of power and like backstabbing and doing all of that like in sort of like that gentlemanly fashion is just always like. It's like, because it, it's just like, oh, hey, it's more of that acadie- like that, that, that sheltered academia where it's like, what we do doesn't really even matter. It's just, um, well, like, like what we like, or what other people do don't matter. It's just all about our games, which is just like, the people with power just want to continue to do what they do and don't care how it affects the rest of the world. Yeah, exactly. Which, thankfully, thankfully, at least in um, Discworld, for the most part, wizards don't seem to be able to do much in the world. Because they're... Okay. Wizards, most of the time, are rather ineffectual. <laughs> I think that's dry design. I think, for me, the interesting thing about this book is, like, oh, yeah, when you get them out of that university structure... This is what happens. The university structure is clearly, like, put in place just to keep them focused on fighting each other and mutually assured destruction so they don't... Well, not even mutually assured destruction, but, like, they all buy into that structure so they focus on working within it instead of creating the pure chaos that happens in a mage war. I just have, like, this headcanon now that the university wasn't even started by a wizard. But just by people who were like, it was started by, up by the wizards. Adenari is an, is my opinion that somebody with yeah. Adenari's type of mind did that. What's funny? What's funny Speaking is that of- it was started by Albert. Canonically, it was started yeah. by Albert. True, fair. <laughs> so, like, you're not wrong because Albert does have that kind of machination sort of brain when you. Once you get him going. So, speaking of Veterinari, we actually get to see a little bit of him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> a very little. We bit. finally have him. Yeah. Except then he turns into a lizard. You're a lizard, Harry. No. Uh. <laughs> I had to say it. I know. I'm contractually obligated anytime I hear the word lizard. 
he's a gecko. Yeah, he's actually like described in the in the way that I recognize for the first time here, with even with yeah. with waffles. And so I guess, and, and, and I guess we will get more in two, three books. Yeah, so close, so it's close, so close. Give it to me. It really is. Yeah, we're, also, we're getting there. You even see uh, this is the first time we see the patrician's uh, edict forbidding mimes. He didn't administer a rain of terror, just the occasional light shower. Mm-hmm. I I love that it what was spelled R E I G. I think these books are written to be read as an audiobook because there are so many puns that work better out loud. I want to touch on this because I missed earlier, but the lore of magic. When a British person reads this audiobook, or at least somebody with a English sort of southern accent, lore and law sound almost the exact same, and up until I think maybe partway through Light Fantastic, I thought it was law the entire time instead of lore. Uh, <laughs> I have been validated this book. That is an intentional pun. <laughs> Let me find it, because I did, there was a moment where it was like, oh, that was on purpose. Terry loved his puns. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And bless him just, for it. As long as I can find it. <laughs> puns are a big part of Discworld. I mean, they they are. I mean, we also have the apocalypse. The apocryphal apocalypse. The four horsemen, too. Oh. The city was under the rule of sorcery. Martial lore. It's such a good pun. But... That, that doesn't really mean anything. It's just two and a half books into this pun existing. Okay. It was. I was. I get more than that. Because it came in. I don't know. Anyway. <laughs> the, the other parts that really sort of stuck out to me in terms of, like, Terry getting real were all of the various. We've noted a couple of them, but, but like all the various meditations on identity, the, especially that Rincewind does. He's he definitely is Terry talking through Rincewind in those moments. Like, um, uh, there's a quote that Rincewind says talent just defines what you do, not what you are. Deep down, I mean, when you know what you are, you can do anything. Yeah. Rincewind is an interesting character. I actually do like him a lot. Like, at first I didn't, but he's, in much the way- He sort of grows on you. In much the way that I can't kind of like a fungus. fond of C-3PO, I'm, yes, like a fungus. In much the same way I can't help but be fond of C-3PO, I can't help but be fond of Rincewind, because it's like, yeah, I'd be like that too. <laughs> I, if I the universe also, was constantly trying to murder you. Like, just in, a, in, a, in this world- with adventure happening at you, I would, in fact, just want to run away and not be involved. So, I, I, I think like my thing I've come to is that I like Rincewind a, like, a decent bit. I would like him so much better if he was not the point of view character of these books. I think I would like him more if we got more people interacting with Rincewind and we got their point of view. Hmm. 
just because when it's, I think it's like when you're only seeing the world through Rincewind's eyes, it gets very repetitive in one note, in my opinion. And it's that thing where he he doesn't want to interact, he doesn't want to engage with the narrative, which gets a little bit tiresome. Um, wh- I was distracted earlier. Did one of you already say that like he's like the the player that you know will like tap every foot with a ten foot pole and stuff? Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, I'll grab that later. But that's exactly that's exactly who he is. Does not trust the GM. <laughs> I really actually enjoy Rincewind a lot with people that he knows well who are kind of making fun of him. Or even people who don't he doesn't know that well who are kind of making fun of him. It's it's charming. Uh, I, I really enjoyed the bits where he was traveling with Konina and Nigel and uh, Creosote. And Creosote got very sarcastic and Konina was like, no, don't. He's my friend. <laughs> it was very good. Yeah, when he has other people who are kind of encouraging him to engage with the narrative and also kind of sticking up for him. And even when they're not just, he's, I like when he interacts with people, I guess. I also really enjoyed him. I enjoyed him from that pretty much, definitely at least through the librarian because he just yeah, got hanging out with people. And I, his, his relationship with the librarian is really sweet. I've been, I've been enjoying it in this book. Speaking of puns, when the librarian is performing an appendectomy on a book, I really <laughs> lost it. <laughs> oh. oh, yeah. That was, a, that was a good moment. Do you know what was also a good moment? Canonical textual confirmation that my son just wants to commit genocide. My fave is problematic just because it wants to murder everyone. What? What is it? What is the line? I know. I know there was a line. I. I. Oh gosh! It was. Um, or it was the luggage's lid was set in an expression of grim determination. It didn't want much out of the world except the total extinction of every other life form. But what it needed more than anything else now was its owner. Look at my son. Pride is not the word I'm looking for. I'm sorry, Lynn Manuel. <laughs> I I also I also love the luggage. Um and I, I think that this one, especially since he has that crush on Konina, I, I feel like this book is the luggage being like, hey you sexy lady. You want to kill all humans? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, definitely the luggage is in love with Kanina because of her propensity for incredible amounts of violence. Which, big mood. Big mood. I, I know we're getting more Rincewind back, so that probably means that like Rincewind survives the dungeon dimension, which means my sweet child will come back. I think there's a lot more of Terry, what becomes much more common later, Terry's sort of like uh, deviations into meditations on like uh, inspiration or, you know, how there's in later books, I think those become multi-page footnotes instead of chunks of text in the middle of the book. But, um, you know, the the idea that inspiration can hit you or it could hit the brick next to you. And if so, then that 
amazing piece of poetry will be lost forever because that brick can't exactly write a piece of poetry. Mm-hmm. So, okay, it said that Rinswin was going to be hit with an idea. Did that hit? It yeah, did. it was the, yeah. It was the one the moment the idea hit and then he was like it's not about talent. It's about who you are, deep, knowing who you right. are deep okay. down. Mm-hmm. Okay, okay, that's that's what it was. Okay. I, it was like, I, I was trying to think out the through line, and okay, that was it. Mm-hmm. But yeah, he, he puts that Chekhov's gun earlier in the book and then fires it later. I think it said something like a receptor in his brain opened up and something, mm-hmm. some kind of description that was like, uh, <laughs> uncomfortable. It's almost like his one single neuron fired. <sighs> Red sweat, big dumbass energy. Yep. I love the comparison to C-3PO, honestly, Minna. Yeah. They even both had the language thing. Oh my god! Sorry, I'm gonna stop Star Wars AUing this someday, maybe. <laughs> That's just my <laughs> reference point right now. But then you wouldn't be you, Minna. There was a time when I didn't make references to Star Wars every goddamn day, but then probably during that time I was doing it for Harry Potter instead, so. Hmm. Well, you could, if you want, for some merch, you could whack together, like, some comp, uh, some, uh, character combos so that we can you know get in trouble with both the house of mouse and um some european publisher i don't even think it's like a good enough (laughs) analogy to do that i had taken on the mouse all i do is retweet that comic where goofy talks about fucking (laughs) uh were, were there any other like bits that really stuck out beyond the main major plot oh um i think i think my favorite bit was probably when when rinsman rinsman gets the carpet to go right and i think it's creosote who's like oh you must have you must have secret arcane knowledge of the universe and rinsman's like no you fucking put it upside down i love this that's another thing i like about rinsman is he's just common sense and also, I, I realized that the carpet is the the blue or gold dress. Yes, I wrote that in my notes too. He, <laughs> Wait, what? Like twenty years ahead of time. Yeah. <laughs> because there's this whole bit where where it's talking about whether is it like gold dragons on a blue background or blue dragons on a gold background oh, or God. both. And it keeps coming and back, ow. and I keep thinking that dress. Oh, yeah, it's that dress. <laughs> I I I got into like back back when that originally happened, th- like I got into like major shouting matches with people over that dress. <laughs> <laughs> and like the the delineations over which like which people saw what like has caused like tribal divisions within my family to this day. Fantastic. <laughs> And and on the subject of Rinsman being a very practical boy, you know, like, he saves the world with a half brick and a sock. 
Which I, the half brick in a sock, I think reappears later. Yeah, it's it's almost a Vimes move. It's an Ankh-Morpork. Pork. You know, it's a child of Ankh-Morpork Pork thing. I love the because, people who yeah. are in yeah. that setting. I don't know yeah. why. I just do. It's very like South London. Uh, I also love the traps in the vault that each of them is just a gag until the last one that's a giant fucking slab falling on the ground with the inscribed with laugh that one off. Also the fact that Nigel got through them just just breezed through nothing happened to him. This boy has the best luck. This is one of those just he sails by on belief and belief can do so much for you in Discworld. Or I guess you're Outlook can do so much for you. And just, is that why? Is that why Rincewind has such a bad life? Because he just assumes the worst is going to happen, and it does. I mean, maybe. He, he might yeah. be a slight sorcerer. I just think out, your outlook is so important in Discworld to like literally how your life goes and how the world reacts to you. <laughs> that sounds like headology, Mena. Well. Are the witches wrong? Because I haven't seen the witches be very wrong yet. (laughs) So we've talked a fair amount about the book's age so far. um, And kind of the, the, it's the era in which it was written. Um, So what do people think has stood up particularly well to the test of time? I think it's like central theme is like that. That's been like that holds up pretty well. Like I think this, like, I think that idea of identity and like what you do with it is pretty timeless. For me, it was the the theme of being caught caught in the flow of this giant global disaster. Or I guess I guess the disc isn't a globe, but but the World attitude wide. still holds true. Yeah. Um, and having this, you know, having this giant thing going on around you and being sort of powerless to stop it, but doing what you can, uh, that's, uh, kind of relevant right now, is a little. The fact that this is the um, conference when conscience came in, it's really, really says a lot. Yeah, and the... The little discussions that Rincewind has with his conscience are honestly some of the some of the good passages, I felt like. Cause you're seeing Rincewind sort of develop as a character in real time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Okay, there is one bit that I just absolutely love. Um, that I think is like it it it, it, it resonates with me on a huge personal level, which is the coffee so powerful you start to uh, you you comprehend reality too clearly. You become nerd. Yeah. <laughs> it's like is- I have achieved the state before. It is hell. Well, and and Justin, you know, close close your ears for this. Um, but. This is this is the secret of Vimes. Is that Vimes is always nerd oh no yep that's why he self-medicates you're good you're good to put the mic or put the headphones back on justin if you want to 
I'm good. I'm good. Uh, listeners, okay. for for we, we because now I am I, I I now have a webcam. I, I'm just taking off my I'm just taking off my headphones so they know I'm not listening. Followed by you know a big thumbs up of like all clear. <laughs> I just did grabby hands. Um, this isn't even really necessarily about what stood up well, but like thinking about the time this was written, this is eighty eight. Good Omens comes out in 90. It's almost a rough draft of the Four Horsemen and Good Omens. Yeah. It's yeah. It's totally still right. charming, though. Pestilence on the floor of the bar going, ba, 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 while the others <laughs> sing. Oh my, like, legitimately, I, I like, you know, there, it's like, usually I find, like, these, like, like side things like that to be like, oh, maybe a little annoying or something. But God, they were so funny. I just love them. And it's like a yeah. really completely different set, except for Death, who's like the same everywhere, pretty much. <laughs> and he was the first one I recognized just from the very white horse that they refused to take. And then I'm like, wait, math.jpg. There's three other horses. The the horse that, that Nigel looks at and thinks that this, the horse is probably smarter than he is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I was like, <laughs> I know that horse. That's Binky. <laughs> Yeah, I literally wrote, wait, I need to find my note because it's very, <laughs> I'm, my notes are just like how I remember what happened, but also they amuse me sometimes. All caps, death is here. Hi, Binky, dash, dash, dash. Oh, shit. Wait, there's four. All right. So should we review the laundry list of, of things that are very much a product mm-hmm. of, of 1980s British racism and imperialism and all of those things? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Let's go with this. I mean, yeah. the thing that I really bumped on this time, uh, much more than I have even in previous takes, and that's to my shame a little bit, is the very uh, British take on the Levant. Um, you know, it's going to return, I'm sorry to say. <laughs> um, but yeah, like... At least, at least Jingo has some interesting plot stuff going on. Yeah, I hope. Oh, is that why y'all talk about Jingo in that tone of voice? Oh. Yeah. yeah. I'm just gonna guess from yeah. the name Jingo. Uh, well, I assume it's that uh, is not a good thing, but that may have yeah, been a it's not. It's not. It, okay. You know, he. It, this is not entirely a spoiler. I think that he approaches it in a way that is much not necessarily more sensitive, but clear that it's making fun of everybody. Um, so the stereotypes are there, but we'll we'll see. We'll see when we get there, and um, it definitely has. Jingo has some definitely interesting aspects, and mm-hmm. you know, definitely has a lot of interesting things to say about war and, and especially and nationalism and stuff like that. That yeah. would have, that would have been around the time of the Gulf war. Correct. Uh, maybe. Yeah. And interventionism double and check, stuff like that. Double check that and possibly edit this out. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, the, but I, I think that that has a lot to say about kind of war in the middle East and the kind of, permanent state of war-ish that we've had between the U.S. Yeah. and 
various nations in the Middle but East. But we're stealing from a, really are yeah, we're stealing from a future podcast here. Generally, generally, Clatch is not not a good place when it's visited, in my opinion. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, and then there's the whole bit with Kunina didn't want to be a barbarian; she wanted to be a hairdresser, and I was just like. Did it have to be a hairdresser? Really? Couldn't it have been like, I don't know, an accountant or something? Yeah, or I I felt like the the one that would have done pretty well would be something like a landscape painter. Um Yeah, because then she could have killed a whole bunch of people with like a paintbrush. That. Yeah, yeah, and and it still has that thing of, you know, the the fine dexterity, but it's less like you know, and and this is not to dis hair stylists in any way because you know they have a lot of skills, but it really is this kind of very stereotypically feminine um, profession that often is looked down on. Um, Which I guess is the, sort you know, of I guess it's sort of the point, eh, but like yeah, it's just it's, not it. it it either it either needed to be something different or be explored in more depth. Yeah, it's it's mm-hmm. I can see why that's the choice, but it is kind of a weak joke. There are moments where it's like almost getting at something about gender. Like for me, the moment is not even about the hairdressing, but when Nigel is like going blithely to look for traps and she's just like when I was five, my dad taught me how. I am clearly the one more skilled to do this, but okay, mm-hmm. you can go ahead. <laughs> He's not even gonna ask yeah. me. Uh, on a, yeah, on a slight tangent, where the fuck is my book of, like, a five-year-old Cody to be trained by Cody? Because that is, that is, that is way interesting, and I'm like, that's a funny book that I, like, I want. Yeah, I want to read her coming-of-age story. Is that like wolf and cub? The other thing that I found kind of uncomfortable with the book was it also had to do with Konina, but the she was very sexualized in a way that's honestly uncommon in the Discworld books. Um, you know the 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 Discworld there there's a lot of sexual references but they tend to be pretty pretty lampshaded very tongue-in-cheek and not you know there'll be references to sex but they're not sexy if that makes any sense to the rest of you right yeah yeah like the Um, wizard staff has a knob on the end yeah or or you know um you know Mr. Once a Fortnight. Right. But I think the Wizards books are especially rough in that respect in general because they so much focus on, like, they so much focus on the idea of sex and the fact that Wizards aren't having it and the fact that they can't be, like, near women without breaking into a cold sweat and needing a shower. And I'm like, I just don't want to deal with this. This is just genuinely yeah. not fun to read. Yeah, it feels um, very incel Yeah, it's... Yeah, and and the thing is that it's not even a justification because, like, women cannot fuck too and do magic, (laughs) or you could not be shitty about. Yeah, it's very incelly. It's and you know, incels, I guess. And compare that to the sort of Frank and 
well, I mean, we guess I haven't really seen it yet, uh, but in general, the the witches. This isn't. This is not really a spoiler, Justin, because like you'll you'll get there and it's cool. Um, <clears throat> but like the the witches are very practical in their approach to sex. It's a biological function. It's how you get babies, and they don't really Nanny Og. You know. <laughs> yeah. The banana na surprise. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, we'll get there. The surprise is that it looks like a penis. <laughs> um, so you know, comparing the 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 sort of hyper male like obsession with sex that you can't have versus the 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 witches who are basically like, man, it's part of life, whatever. It's it's interesting to to yeah. see that dynamic in play. Yeah, it just makes the Wizards books another aspect of the Wizards books that's a little bit rough to get through every yeah, time. Totally. <sighs> I I also um Creosote's like story fetish also was pretty uncomfortable to read. Uh, because there's there's a fair amount of like describing his reactions to people telling to to especially pretty women telling stories. And it gets it gets uh, a little bit hot under the collar in in a way that's kind of kind of uncomfortable. Yeah, it never reaches the point where repetition becomes funny. It just sort of gets weirder and grosser. Even like the way that he compliments Konina, it is. Oh, <laughs> she likes it, but I'm not sure that's the point. There okay. There's there's a okay. It, it is kind of a play on love poetry, and to that extent, I can understand it. It's just a little bit weird, also. It's very Song of Songs poetry. Things. Yeah, I mean, or even jeweled like, melons. Yeah, I mean, how sexual? But there's like a little bit of like any kind of love poetry that like just kind of objectifies women without questioning whether they want that or, but. It's, I think it's more a play on him being a poet than anything, but it, it gets a little weird at points. Yeah, that, that bothered me less than, like, having the, having that interaction with the barmaid near the end who, who has hundreds of stories that she can oh. tell different ways. No. Uh-huh. It's it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a uh, it's a little uncomfortable. Yeah, we're far enough along now that we actually have some interesting references to like the rest of the disc um, and the other books. So, so there's the there's the reference to the luggage having swallowed a spell book, gotten indigestion, and then spat it out three ah. days later. Um, I love that. I love Which, the little, like, just daily life with the luggage. <laughs> but that might have been the Octavo. it was the Octavo, yeah. Oh, God. Yeah. And, like, I, I don't, um, I don't 100% understand the timeline on Kanina. I don't think she's Bethany's daughter. If she was, then the timelines would get real uncomfortable. I actually did a little bit of looking on this on the L space wiki where people have put an inordinate amount of time 
an effort into trying to quantify the Discworld timeline, there's... which is um, a little wibbly wobbly, timey wimey. Mm-hmm. There's no reason to assume that Bethan is Cohen's first wife or even his first lover. I don't know that right. we know that Conina's. Yeah. Uh, yeah, no. I... Yeah, I, I think that yeah. it's pretty explicitly stated in the text that, like, or in, in Light Fantastic, that Cohen commonly, or it, I don't know if it says Cohen, but the other barbarian that we see, like, that's stock and trade. Yeah, you you save a kingdom, you get somebody's daughter, right? I don't know mm-hmm. if that's actually Or, what it was, you know, you rescue a temple handmaid. Rescue and, a damsel. Yeah. Well, and then there's the, there's the reference where Rincewind is, you know, trying to, trying to get Cohen to think about his health, um, you know, think, think about, you know, your, your age and, you know, is it really safe? And he's like, I, I'll, I'll, I'll go easy on her. <clears throat> um, but yeah, so, so the, the people on the L space wiki have put a lot of, a lot of effort into the timeline. So apparently Cohen has been placed as being born in 1878 um, UC, which I believe is a university calendar. There's a calendar. There's um, years. What? Yes. I, I've been yes, wondering I will this drop vaguely. you the link. I love calendars and trying to figure out whatever. Leave me alone. Um, it, the, the, it's the university calendar that the zero point is when the university was founded by Albert. Mm-hmm. Um. So the Light Fantastic is apparently in 1964. Um, and sorcery, there's a few different guesses for when sorcery happens. Um, if you go by the luggage spitting out a book, which is potentially the Octavo, that puts it in 1965. If you go by some other clues it could be either in 1974 or 1980 but anyway uh, that there's a pretty there's a pretty hefty age difference there it there or there would be if conina was bethany's daughter there'd be a pretty pretty weird stuff going on with age there and the elk space timeline for discworld is fascinating um justin you cannot look at it i like okay as somebody who like has gotten into multiple fandoms just by browsing wikis and stuff. This is painful. I know, it's really tough. I, I'm trying to avoid the wiki also because I don't want any more spoilers than I already have. And I'm like, but I want to know. I'm also like, maps and timelines are things, maps and calendars are things that can always get me. I don't know why, I'm a nerd. Now that we're actually like publicly released these episodes, I'm gonna wait until like who's gonna be the first person to show up in my mentions giving me Discworld spoilers. <laughs> Which, by the way, so, if you do that, I will block you. <laughs> oh, and the the other the other thing that makes the Discworld to Round World um, time conversion a challenge is that it's quite possible that the Discworld year is 400 days long. Of course it is. Or possibly 800, but 400 is more likely. Well, they've got two sets of seasons. There's eight seasons. Yeah. 
The dis- the, the disc world is a very different place. The only season I remember is Back Spindle Winter. This reminds me of the of a, of a thing I saw the other day. Uh, it, something something I saw a couple days ago. We do in fact have four seasons in California, contrary to popular belief. Flood, fire, tarantula, shenyan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, also, a good question is, what happened to Cut Angle? I assume he's just living his best life, right? Did he, oh, did no, he just no, go... No, no. Oh, no, I'm getting Cut Angle confused with uh, the guy from... from the uh, other Mark. one whose name starts with Cut. God. I don't know his name, but they both start with... And they were like two books in a row. So there are <sighs> answers to major, uh, major future wizards where they are during this time. Um... Generally speaking, the answer is they're lying about where they were, um, because a lot of them claim to have been, you know, sick that day or uh, on their father's farm or something like that. Yeah, they're all being fascists. (laughs) (sighs) And Justin, I think that you you had you had a. Yeah, little bit that you liked here. Oh yes, um, the fact that Cohen has like a ghost-ridden how-to guide for heroism, complete with illustrations and diagrams, is like it's just chef kiss perfect. Because mm-hmm. I, I doubt the idea that Cohen is literate, much less has the has the ability to keep an attention span to write a full book. I mean, that's the exact thing that Prince Wynn said, except <laughs> oh, also. Yeah. But he does love money. (laughs) Clearly, the disc world operates on a different economy from the round world because that implies that authors get money from writing books. I think this is more of one of those celebrity memoir style things. Uh, True, true, true. Yeah, different, different category. He licensed his name. So Justin, Justin and Minna, uh, who do you who do you ship here, or or who do you not ship? Can, okay, so I, I like I don't ship um, Kanina and Nigel, but they're gonna have some real dumbasses of children. <laughs> <laughs> like they're, they're, their kids are gonna be really good at adventuring, but they're gonna be morons. That's how Harry Dettery works. How do I not ship Let Me Count the Ways? But also, just in tiny moments, completely separating them from a lot of their context. Maybe Creosote and Konina? There were were some funny moments with them. (laughs) But that's like, I feel like you'd have to like either write complete crack fic or like do a lot of building up and peeling them away from their context there is a uh is this a ship i don't know like i want i want coin to have a real dad i want the luggage to find love <laughs> oh a nice armoire or something the lug- uh, i mean Knowing the luggage, 
Um, it, it, it's it's ideal made as a guillotine. <laughs> now I'm just trying to think of fun inanimate objects, either in Discworld or elsewhere, to ship the luggage with. An Iron Maiden. I mean, my very first thought is the TARDIS, but I don't know that that would work out. Is it like a box of? Is it like a bag of holding and a portable hole thing? No. <laughs> the biggest oh. bag. So that's it for Justin and Minna's shipping corner. <laughs> yeah, this one is very short for this book. <laughs> there, there is nothing. Listen, for for a book that comes about for what happens when wizards fuck, I I have very little desire to. Um, it is. Yeah, your your answer is please don't. Just because I'm thinking of. About Mostly just because I'm thinking about old wizards and um, oh god, uh, just just think like a dude as wrinkly as Emperor Palpatine. Oh god. Well, no, and also they're all clearly like messes once you like turn on the lights. Right. Uh, yeah. No. I. Uh. Let's move along. Aaron, how would you rate this book? So I'm actually going to adjust my rating. I would. Uh, I would give it six out of eight. Very carefully poured thimblefuls of Clatchian coffee. I'm going to give it 75% of a spell book, uh, despite the librarian's best efforts to salvage the rest. 1.5 out of 4 horsepersons of the apocalypse. I would give it 5 out of 8 wizard sons. Um, and now, now that we have... Finished talking about sorcery. It is time for me to read the back cover of Weird Sisters. So, this is, let's go to Amazon.com. And. This is a good bit. I like this bit. Okay. Oh, I like this cover. It's a, there's like three little hats above a cauldron and. Good there. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> Terry Pratchett's fantasy classic Weird Sisters, a novel in the Discworld series, is the story of Granny Weather Rex, the most highly regarded non-leader a coven of non-social witches could ever have. Generally, these loners don't get, get don't get involved in anything, much less royal intrigue. But then there are those times they can't help it. As Granny Weatherwax is about to discover, though, it's a lot harder to stir up trouble in the castle than some theatrical types would have you think, even when you've got a few unexpected spells up your sleeve. Granny Weatherwax teams with two other witches, Nanny Og and Margat Garlic, as an unlikely alliance to save a prince and restore him to the throne of Lancra in a tale that borrows, or is it parodies, some of William Shakespeare's best-loved works. Hold on, I'm flipping my desk here. Are we fucking getting a Macbeth parody? Maybe. Spoilers. I can say also, no more. I'm sorry. Okay, no, no, no. I'm not, I'm not in a theater. I'm allowed to say the Scottish play. You're allowed to say Macbeth. You don't have to turn around three times and, like, spit over your shoulder. It's fine. I, I have I have witnessed somebody doing that and our our director actually sending somebody out. Yeah, my theater teacher in high school did that. Yeah. Um but yeah, no, I'm I'm yeah, okay, I'm fucking hyped with this. This is this is a lot this is a, 
It's a good I, book. I, I'm really, yeah, let, let's, I'm, this is my jam. Let's do this. Fuck Rincewind. <laughs> the moral, moral of sorcery. Fuck Rincewind. Except don't. Don't fuck Rincewind. <laughs> do, do we have any other more traditions or predictions I have to make? Uh, um, have we talked I about mean, the Seamstress' I mean, Guild this I, time? Well, you spoiled what Seamstress' Guild was. Oh, darn it. Yeah, we spoiled I, I mean, you're, trying to guess Mrs. Palm's first name. Right. Uh, what have I guessed so far? You've guessed Harry and Rosie. <laughs> Good one, November and December, Justin. Um, <laughs> uh, sweetie. We'll add that to the list. I think I literally have a list. Hold on. I really like the bit of you reading the reading the back cover of the next book. Yeah, let's, oh, let's yeah, keep that up. These are these are. Justin gets to traditions. see what's coming. <laughs> it's like I I legitimately I only look at the name of the next book we are going to read. I don't look at the cover if I can help it. Uh, I, I think that for the purposes of the bit, I think it'd be great to just keep it to the back cover, and then Justin's initial reaction. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what are your weird sister's predictions? No, like, um, I don't want I, I mean, don't want him to that... give predictions. We did predictions on sorcery, is the only oh, reason we did? I asked. Oh, okay. Yep. Yeah, we did. Oh, let me read them oh. out. Justin's sorcery predictions. The sorcerer will attempt to take the wizards into shape, a la Alfred, uh, and the luggage will have to I be... I got that. Him. Um, sadly, did not get that. <laughs> but I can only have so much wish fulfillment. I mean, like, as it turned out, I, yeah, my my sweet boy ate so much. He was very full by the end. Although a lot of them he didn't eat so much as just sort of stomped. Complete Discography is an independent production by four people who just really like these books. All opinions expressed during the show are our own. All quotes from primary or related works are used under the Fair Use Doctrine and remain copyrighted by their original owners. The music for this podcast is sourced from Incompetech. The intro music is Take a Chance. The outro is Fuzzball Parade. Both are by Kevin McLeod, and both are used under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution license. The rest of it is distributed under a Creative Commons 4.0 attribution, non-commercial, no-derivatives license. Share it. Please share it. But say where you got it, don't make money off it, and don't change it. Connect with the show on Twitter at atuinpod which is A-T-U-I-N underscore P-O-D, or email us at atuin.pod at gmail.com. <laughs>